0: Hi, this is Keith Kefchen, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders and outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Today, I have the good fortune of speaking with a dear friend in Lori Robinson Hayden, uh, formerly uh, the Associate General Counsel at CBS for a couple of decades, even uh, did a stint uh, with the NFL uh, in their labor department as she was graduating. Uh, She's now uh, the founder and CEO of the Corporate Council of Women of Color, and she's doing really tremendous things uh, for the legal profession and women of color in particular, and I know you'll enjoy her comments about how she grew up. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Lori. How are you?
1: Hey, we finally did it. How are you
0: doing? (laughs) I'm doing great. And you?
1: I'm
0: doing well. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this. I don't know how much other episodes you've listened to, but it's decidedly hospitality specific, as you know, because that's my expertise. You've been in
1: hospitality for a long time.
0: Yeah. Uh, how I are don't, you
1: all dealing with this COVID?
0: Oh, it's been, it's been a very, very difficult 14 plus months. Uh, this industry has yeah. obviously been so... A hard hit. And it's the people who could probably deal with it the least that have been the most affected, all the line level workers, all the people that are working paycheck to paycheck, taking care of their families in that sense. And it's been, you know, a very difficult time. And then, you know, not to be a downer, but you know, you've had like the passing of Arnie Sorensen, the CEO oh, at Marriott. and. Yeah. Right probably like every other industry. Uh, I saw the news about, you know, your your friend and we've had the same kind of thing happen in our industry where we've lost, boy, it just seems like uh, a lot of senior um, ombudsman type of people yeah. to this industry. So it's been very rough, but there's a positivity to this industry too. It's a fun business. People are generally very positive uh, and you're starting to see, at least some light at the end of the tunnel. People are traveling again. I have some hotel clients who have resort type properties and they're hundred percent full. Yeah. People are ready, uh, so. to the <laughs>
1: ready to get out of the house. Get out of house. And yeah. you know, like even with our conferences, we have a event at JW Marriott
0: Okay. Like
1: trying to get people on the phone at these hotels to answer your questions like impossible Cause they're furloughed every other day. You know? Right.
0: Well, they're furloughed. And then the people that are still there working, you know, double, triple time. So it's, yeah, it's just been uh, a little crazy. Uh, and my son, my older son is a chef in the city.
1: Oh, uh, wow.
0: He, yeah. He's the chef at the Dutch in, in uh, Soho. And so I've been kind of through him watching what's been happening right on the kind of front lines of of COVID in the restaurant space and all the impact that it's had on restaurant (laughs) tours. I walked
1: through (laughs) uh, DC and it's just so sad. Every other shop is like shut down.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it's like I walked past the St. Regis hotel. I think the hotel is open, but they had a big restaurant and it's like, they got the wood in the windows and it's like, yeah,
0: that's yes, unbelievable, but let, let's let's jump in because, I, again, I know you're busy, and I think you said you had a youngster at home. Right. Well, he, I'm
1: in good shape. He is at my mom's house, and I won't have to worry about him <laughs> jumping on the computer and talking. Uh,
0: okay. And now, now
1: it's like jumping on the computer. I'm on a Zoom call.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now the little ones. I got a four-year-old, and he was like, well, you can just do it oh, on wow. You can do everything on Zoom now, Dad. You don't even have to leave the house. I was like, no, I got to go. I got to get out of the house.
1: I know. Well, that, that's the good thing about COVID is it's kind of forced us all to be together, yeah. which we never could do because, you know, I was traveling. I, I was busy. I was doing this. Sure. I was doing that. But now everybody's home. We get to enjoy each other. We're going to yeah. go to Florida for a month next week. Oh, good. We're excited about that.
0: Yeah, we did that in January. We went to South Carolina to see my folks who had retired. And we went there and spent the week in kind of isolation and then spent three weeks with them because they had done the same. So, uh, yeah, it was it was nice to do that. And I mean, I haven't seen my parents three weeks in a row, I think, since I was in high school. Uh, but well, again, let let's jump in. Uh, okay. You, you kind of generally know the the topic and some of the questions, but I'll I'll morph because again, I I find you know your background and and what you've been doing of late probably very different to the listeners that typically listen to the podcast, and so I, I think it, you'll be uh, call it a breath of fresh air or just something uh, quite different. Um, so if, if you could maybe start by walking through how you got to where you are. Uh, I mean, CBS, huge organization. Uh, before you left, you were kind of one of the big dogs there. Uh, so give us a sense of, you know, how you got there and what key decisions were made that that moved you down that path.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it, it started out with, I was at Indiana University, Bloomington School of Law. Okay. And one day I was sitting in class. It was time for summer internships. I didn't have a summer internship yet. And I saw a flyer on the table to work at the National Football League in New York City. And I had no interest in working at, in New York at the National Football League in their Labor Management Council Division. But I said, hey, you know, what I, what do I have to lose? So I went to apply and it so happened that one of the alums of IU worked as a senior vice president in the National Football League. So he came to town. I interviewed with him. I got the job. I moved to New York City the summer of my second year um, and I loved New York City. I loved working for the National Football League. And we had an arbitration against a former player. And I got to fly to uh, Indianapolis and stay in this really fancy hotel. Now, at this time, I was like 23 years old. I hadn't lived. I hadn't traveled. So that was really big for me. But I decided right then and there, Okay, I love labor and employment law. This is what I'm going to do. This was in 1997, before there was Facebook, before there was LinkedIn, before there was Twitter. So I decided I am going to network this entire summer and I'm going to try to meet with as many labor and employment lawyers that I can while I'm in New York city. So I got something called, do you remember this Martindale Hubble? I got the the old school physical book (laughs) and just went through the book and just started cold calling people in New York city. Wow. To try to meet with them for lunch or meet with them for dinner to talk to them about their careers and labor and employment law. And I, where, where
0: do you think, where do you think that gumption came from? <laughs> I mean, not, not a lot of people I think would have uh, done that. It sounds like you were very determined, maybe more than most.
1: I, I've always been a very determined person. And I mean, I, I think when I look at what drives me, mm-hmm. I would start with my family you know, as a child growing up, my parents both instilled in me that I could do anything that I put my mind to. And for years, there's been this running joke that when I was three years old, they would ask me, well, what what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And I would say, I want to be a hot dog lady. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But, you know, everybody would ask me, what do you want to be? And I would say, I want to be a hot dog lady. And, you know, My family and the community, they always encouraged me like, you can be whatever you want to be. If you want to be a hot dog lady, we will support you in that. And it wasn't a negative. You can't be a hot dog lady. What what do you mean? But throughout my my upbringing, it was always you can do whatever you put your mind to. In my community, we had many African-Americans who lived in Prince George's County. I saw role models who were doctors, lawyers, we had um, a military general that lived up the street from our house and many people were high ranking officials with the U.S. government. So, you know, I think from that came my passion and my drive and my faith in God, more importantly, Mm -hmm. that he tells me that I can do all things through him. So I just knew that if I got on that phone, I was gonna connect with someone (laughs) and I did. And who was that someone? (laughs) I I connected with two people that summer. I connected with Ronald M. Green, the founding partner of Epstein, Becker, and Green, Mm -hmm. who took the time to meet with me and gave me a job that summer before I left New York City. And I met with another lady, very nice lady, Susan K. Anderson, who was a labor and employment counsel at CBS. I had created this student business card <laughs> for my networking, and I gave her this card, and she says she always remembered me because of that card. But I stayed in contact with Susan for all of those years after law school. I worked at Epstein, Becker, and Green because I met Ronald Green. After mm. that, I went to work for Safe Off Shaw, and one day when I was in the office at Safe Off Shaw, I got a phone call from guess who? Susan K. Anderson. All right. And she said, hi, Lori, you know what? We, we have an opening at CBS. I think you would be great. Why don't you apply? It's in our Labor Management Council Division. So I applied and got the job and the rest was history. When I got to CBS, like I said, I started in the labor and employment group, Viacom split from CBS in 2006. So a new chief legal officer came in, a guy named Louis J. Briskman, and at that time, I had started Corporate Council Women of Color. He was a um, big advocate in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he saw my star, and he picked up the phone one day and called me and said, hey, look, you know, I like what you're doing with CCWC. I want you to come do that for me. Would you consider coming to work for me in my office? And I was blown away because back then we had such a uh, structure like the GC never calls the 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 low man on the total pole. So that was out of ordinary right then and there. All right. But I took the job and and he was a sponsor and he was a mentor. He gave me high visibility. He connected me with senior leaders within the company. He connected me with board members at CBS Corporation. That whole experience was a total game changer, which accelerated my career, I believe, by 20 years. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Right.
0: I think I can assume certain things, but it sounds like you've had some pretty important mentors in your career or people you said were sponsors. I don't know if a lot of listeners would have clicked into that yet. But uh, who are those people who's had the greatest effect and, and how is that mentorship process or sponsorship process you know, helped uh, advance your career?
1: Well, it's been very critical uh, with respect to my organization, Corporate Council Women of Color, which I started back in 2002. It was started because when I got to New York City, I did not see diverse people. Like I said, I I had grown up in Prince George's County, Maryland, which was 98% African-American. I had gone to North Carolina Central University, a historical Black college, again, 98% African American. I had never been really a minority in my life, except for going to Indiana at Bloomington. And -hmm. I had a great experience there. But when I got to New York City in the practice of law in 1998, I was like the only, you know, Black woman in the labor and employment group. All of my friends who worked at firms, they were like the only black person at their firm. And everybody just felt kind of isolated and alone. Mm. We didn't have mentors. So then we sought off to mentor each other. And then I started going to the National Bar Association and trying to connect with older mentors. But, you know, in anybody's career, you will not make it without the help of that mentor, that person who can help and guide you and give you career guidance and and tips and advice for success. And then within the law firm or even the corporate structure, your advancement will Mm -hmm. only go but so far unless you have that sponsor, the person who you are able to rely on their currency, your currency. And they're the person who's in that room talking on your behalf when you cannot talk on your behalf and making sure you get high visibility and the type of assignments that will grow and develop you. So at Epstein, Becker and Green, my sponsor was Ronald M. Green. And then right. when I got to um, CBS, my sponsor was Lou Briskman. And I'm not gonna make this political. I don't care who you voted for, but you know what Lou Briskman did for me is just what uh, Joe Biden has done for Kamala Harris. And we need more Joe Bidens and Lou Briskmans to open up the door to women and minorities and women of color. And, you know, it's it's a make or break type situation of whether you're in a corporate structure or law firm structure and you are hitting stagnation versus progression. And that that sponsor will help open those doors for you.
0: Again, with your NFL experience, maybe I uh, use an NFL example, but one of the theories uh, that Dr. Jim, who's my business partner, we wrote you know, a book, as you probably know, we're, we're thinking of, or in the process of writing a second, and it, it's called The Way, uh, because a lot of people have great vision, they have great strategy, and the 30,000 foot stuff they get real well, but the devil gets lost in the details. Right. And, you know, people talk about the Patriot way. I'm sure you're very familiar with that. Having worked at the NFL is, 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 there a Lori Robinson way? Is there a way of doing business that you prescribe to that makes you successful or is it something else?
1: Well, you know, I, I like that you bring up the Patriot example. I'm, I'm not a Patriots fan per se, But whenever whenever I'm home talking with my husband, you know, when we start talking about the Patriots, I said, look, at the end of the day, that is a, you know, team of champions. It starts at the top. Robert Kraft is a champion. Uh, Coach Belichick, he is a champion. The quarterback at the time, Tom Brady, he was a champion. It wasn't just like one person who was driving it it was all of the people they had a true team model and a team model that helped to foster the results so you know when i think about my career my business and in the different things that i'm i'm doing you know i think that my leadership style or my business style is a democratic style one that involves collaboration with other people i always say the best ideas come from the suggestion box the best ideas come from the people and when when you open up the door to be collaborative and to get their ideas and to show that you appreciate their ideas by implementing them you know that only puts a spark in those those stakeholders that you have to come to you with more innovative ideas and when i think about the the things that you know might set me apart I think the key ingredient for me is execution. I have a lot of people who have the best ideas in the world and they will talk to you every Thursday night about these great ideas. But you see over time, the ideas never leave the drawing board of their mind. Okay. <laughs> They're just there.
0: Yeah,
1: and, and, and my philosophy is once I see a goal in my mind, I'm big on visualization, Okay, I visualize in my mind the execution of it and the success of it. I mean, even if I have to clean up the house, I visualize myself in the kitchen, washing the dishes, putting them in the dishwasher, running the vacuum cleaner, and then I say, Okay, I've got a plan. And what I just visualized in my mind, I do it got and it, it gets done. And same with business, um, I visualize the success of it. How should I go about putting it in place, visualizing it in my mind, then putting together a strategic plan around that and then executing? And, and I think that's what has been able to help me get a lot of things done, make the connections that I've been able to make through networking and build corporate council women of color from scratch out of my Harlem apartment all those years ago.
0: Yeah. No, I want to talk about that more um. Uh, in depth, but maybe get through a couple of other points because uh, I think that's not only interesting, but I, I think it's very, very powerful what you've what you've done. Maybe another controversial issue of pay compensation. Uh, one of the many things that we do here is executive comp consulting, and the the issue of even CEO pay obviously hits the headlines. It seems uh, every time proxy season rolls around, you know, are you worth that kind of money? Uh, The inequities of pay that you're probably very familiar with uh, between men, women, people of color and so forth. Just walk me through your, your thinking on fairness in pay in the United States of America.
1: Well, I was watching the news the other day and they were talking, I I think it was equal Pay Day, and they they were giving the statistics and they said that, for example, women of color, Black women in particular, make 63 cents to the dollar that a white male makes. Hispanic women make 55 cents to the dollar that the man makes. And I think white women make 83 cents to the dollar that a, a white male makes. So there's definitely disparity and why we're not in the room. We're not in the room making the decisions. Um, And and that's what a lot of the the push and the focus is on right now, Mm -hmm. figuring out a way how to diversify corporate boards. Like I said, the tone starts at the top, kind of like the analysis we had with the uh, Patriots. And I think if you have more people um, with, with input, with different perspectives and you have, People of color and women all sitting in on the decision regarding comp and what the standard is regarding comp, mm-hmm. then I think we will be able to see um, the playing field get leveled. Right now, you know, you have one group in many of these corporate environments and law firms or wherever you are making the decision on who gets paid what. I remember a friend told me this story. She worked at a law firm a few years ago, and she had put in all the work and all the time and all the energy. And when it was time for compensation, the uh, male partner told her, well, I can't give you more than Jim. Jim has a family. He has a wife and kids to support. You don't. now." Wow. <laughs> And he actually articulated that. Thanks for that
0: terrible bit of honesty.
1: <laughs> it, was, it was honesty. But, you know, Oof. again, at the end of the day, if you, if you don't have women on the compensation committee where we can look and make sure that, okay, 10 people we're looking at who are being compensated, they all did the same type of work, the same right. level of work. The, the compensation should be the same. And we're not looking for little loopholes to pay one person more than the other.
0: Do you think um, these recent rules or laws put in place by many states, including New York, about not being able to ask uh, about pay? Do you think it's helping or are there still too many loopholes to run around?
1: I think that over time um, that is going to actually help. Okay, You know, now, COVID has really changed the game, I think, the way where we were progressing toward um, the enactment of these new laws that say you can no longer ask for the pay history. Right. Um, I think it's going to help. And actually, you know, when we talk to and mentor, you know, our mem- members who have been impacted by pay gap, we, we, we encourage them to apply for jobs in the state where they have the rules that these companies cannot ask for the pay history because that gives them a chance to kind of reset and reboot if they can. The American Bar Association did studies years ago that indicated that when it came to women of color, they, they got so behind in their compensation over the years that by the time they retired, they will have lost out in over a million dollars in compensation. And it starts. It starts very small. It starts at five thousand dollars when you're second year associate. Associate. Then the next two years, now you're behind twenty thousand dollars. And then as you progress in your career, the just the gap gets bigger and bigger. And then you look up and you're you're you know grossly underpaid by anywhere from one hundred thousand to maybe three to four hundred thousand dollars. So. Yes. These state laws are going to help. People will be able to reset, hopefully, by not having to give that information. And when they interview for the job, they should ask, how much did the person who had this job before me make? Or they should go to headhunters and say, my range for this position is X to Z.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why our comp practice has grown so much, even with, during the COVID period here, is that people just want to understand where they sit on a spectrum. Uh, and employers want to as well. Uh, but now more and more individuals are being proactive about where they think they should be or where they do fit on the spectrum of pay for a given role. And I think we've been very helpful in that regard. So, uh, and, and, yeah, And
1: that's one of the things that you know, we always encourage, you know, the people we mentor to do. We say, you know, when, when the recruiter calls you, take the recruiter, recruiter's phone call
0: mm-hmm.
1: because they have the information on what your salary range should be. And don't yeah. just stop with the recruiter. Talk to your accountant your, your or financial manager. Your financial manager sees the compensation of multiple people. Right. you can ask your your financial planner you know how, how how am I looking on paper compared to other people that you manage and they can tell you you know you're behind because everybody else I'm managing they have more money in their 401k or they're giving more stock awards and more equity and you have no stock awards and equity. so there are multiple resources now where you can get salary information you're armed and dangerous. When you go to interview, because you have the information and you're not relying on the other side to tell you how much you should be paid, but you know your worth and you can ask for it.
0: Fair enough. Uh, Another angle. uh, You know, how do you you seem like a in a good way, a pretty competitive person. I, I tend to gravitate towards those types of folks. Sports-oriented uh, people, but how do you view competition in a positive way? Are they just people <laughs> you beat their brains out, or can you learn from them? What, what what's your kind of viewpoint on your competitors?
1: Well, in my in my early days in college, um, as I mentioned, I went to North Carolina Central University, and I ended up being the campus queen, Miss North Carolina Central University when I was there. And one of the things we had to do is we had to go around the country and participate in these collegiate pageants. Wow. And (laughs) it was the best experience that I had because it really pushed me out of my comfort zone. But I remember when I would be at the competitions and, you know, one competition I, I ended up losing because, I started focusing on what the other contestant was doing and trying to copy what the other contestant did. And it just resulted in my not being my authentic self. And Mm. anyway, I ended up not advancing the way I I think I could have. And then the, the next time I had a pageant, you know, at that moment, it dawned on me that at that time, my only competition was me. I had to stay focused on me and what I'm doing and making making sure that I'm doing what I'm doing in an excellent way. And, you know, I think it's important to see what your competitors are doing, you know, to make sure that you're keeping up with the trends and you're keeping up with the innovations. But I, I think to make, not, not make the mistake of trying to copy and paste what other people are doing. Try to find the path that, they're not doing and you're not doing and you find the innovation to differentiate your product and um you know figure out a way to better serve your customers so i think competition it is good but i think you know you really have to focus on what you're doing mm-hmm. and make sure you're doing it well instead of looking over to the left and looking over to the right and trying to copy and paste what they're doing instead of honing in and doing what you do and doing it really well.
0: Fantastic. First person, I think, of the group that's actually talked about how uh, the focus on yourself first and then move out from there uh, versus, again, trying to, as you said, copy, paste. So, you know, a a very interesting look Uh, as we move to the end of this, because I, again, don't want to take too much of your time. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just trying to. Part Yeah, maybe you're right. Uh, part two with Laurie Robinson, right? Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, one of the great skills is adaptability. We found that again in our first book. We think we've heard that word a lot: resilience, adaptability, and so forth. With COVID. You know, how have you been able to either adapt or how do you use adaptability uh, in some of the uh, challenges or fights that uh, you find yourself in?
1: Yeah, you know, adaptability, you will not make it past tomorrow if you are not flexible and able to adapt. And. You know, one of the challenges that we had with as an organization of corporate council women of color last year is the fact that our event last year was slated to be in Dallas. And at that time, Dallas was, you know, it was COVID city. Yeah, hot and spot, we, yeah. we, we couldn't go there. And we had to, you know, we had to make a decision as an organization that we had to have a conference. Um, we could not just cancel the conference and carry it over. It had to happen, and we we decided we had to have we had to have a virtual conference. Now, at the time COVID happened and we had to pivot and go virtual, there were no virtual platforms on the shelf at that time that we could buy and use. Mm-hmm. So we literally had to create a virtual platform by you know from scratch, wow. and you know, it almost killed me last year because I was, my husband was like, you're always working, you're always working because the the virtual event was like 10 times what a live event would be because everything requires pre-recording and uploading and dealing with the computer glitch. But we ended up making the pivot and we had this virtual conference and it worked out to, to be so beneficial that we ended up having more people attend last year because we had the virtual component than we had ever had before. So now this year we do hope to go live in uh, Los Angeles in September, but now that we have a virtual platform, we have the opportunity to host it virtually as well, in addition to live. So I kind of think of like the the people who are still using the rotary phone Mm -hmm. and they they don't want to adapt and move to the new technology. You have to move to the new technology or you will not be around. You know you look at Kodak, I mean they they were the the company you had to go to the store and buy the ink right. and put it in a device and click click yeah. click and then they let everybody come in and, and you know that's the time to see what the competitors doing and say oh my god we better, <laughs> we better get yeah. going on this but
0: yeah the whole buggy whip uh story is is pretty incredible uh, that people just go blindly down one and only path sometimes uh, and that's why we we again we wanted to talk a lot about that because people give it lip service and then there are people that really do adapt and they've proven how and there's a system for adaptability it's not just a personality trait that there's a system for how to adapt when when things don't go your way or you're faced with a challenge um,
1: and I think that's why it's important to have diversity because usually hmm. what happens is you have all this groupthink going on and the emperor you know everyone's looking at the emperor who has no clothes but they're like the emperor has clothes yeah. and you're like you know the emperor doesn't have clothes but I'm too scared <laughs> to say anything
0: that and old white guy's naked i'm yeah. sorry <laughs> And if you had
1: diversity you would have somebody in the room to say we are going to be in trouble if we do not adapt to this technology and we we don't you know you know everybody oh we're too big to fail we're too great we're too wonderful Everyone around the table is bought into it. And that's why these, these companies are no longer around, because they yeah. didn't have diversity think, thinking.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, I, I really do want to spend some more time talking about uh, social injustice in particular. Uh, I mean, your viewpoints, will I, I think, are going to be at least very interesting to me. Uh, we've been, you know, I live in a neighborhood that's very diverse. Uh, Bed-Stuy, it used to be all white New York at one point, then it turned all black at one point. Now it's quite diverse. And I saw it firsthand in my neighborhood, what was going on this past summer. And it's still there. I mean, it's a very active spot. And uh, we're involved in that. But I, I wonder, you know, your perspective on social injustice, what could you know, people like me who may look like me, forget about my thinking for a moment. Uh, how should we others like me be thinking about this issue? What can we do to be the solution rather than the problem in your mind?
1: Well, you know, I, there's this, the famous poem uh, that goes, you know, first they came for the communists But I didn't, I wasn't communist, so I didn't speak up. You know, then they came for the socialists. I wasn't socialist. So I didn't say anything. I didn't speak up. And then they came for the next group. And I wasn't that next group. And and then then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak. So, I mean, I really think when you look at everything that's going on in the world and everything that's going on in our communities, it's not a... I'm not that group, so it's not my issue. Because what when we when we fail to get involved and when we fail to speak up, we see that it ends up impacting all of us. So you know, as a as you know, as a person in your in your neighborhood, and and just getting involved, you know, like I said, we need more Joe Bidens. We know we need more Lou Briskins. You know. Are you mentoring people in your community? Are you offering summer jobs to the kids up the street who may not have the access to the opportunity? Are you providing your knowledge and your wisdom to make the community better? Those are all of the things that we all need to be doing because at the end of the day, it, it's all of our issue. I'm a I, I big Spider-Man fan. And I, I just think over and over again to the part where Peter Parker was walking down the street and saw the guy, he was doing the robbery and something told him, you know what? You should stop the guy. And he's like, I'm not gonna stop the guy. It's not my problem. And he walks away and then fast forward, the robber comes and kills his uncle. So it's like, you know, we all have the power to have impact in in things that are going on in our society that are wrong. We all have the collective power to fix it and make it better. And if we don't do it, you better believe it's going to be your problem later. You don't see it now, but it will be your problem later. So let's be proactive on it.
0: Got it. Thank you for that. Uh, Maybe a couple of last few questions. Uh, We talked about the patriots. I've been asking folks about how they define what a dynasty is and how do you Most people say, boy, I would love to build a great company or a great team or whatever it is. But uh, what constitutes a dynasty for you? And and is building one even worth uh, even thinking about? What's your what's your thoughts on on that?
1: You know, I I think it's very important Um, when I when we look at our lawyer members, and they spend all of their co- time in their career and they're striving for this job and this role and this promotion and and many of them get it and then they stop and say wait you know you know what's my legacy
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and at the end of the day when you talk about a dynasty the dynasty is the legacy and and right. for me my dynasty it will be my family the other side of my d- dynasty will be my business But if I look at the business aspect, it's making sure that the business can sustain past me, you know, and making sure that we have developed the right talent and given the people in our organization enough ownership and the ability to foster innovation by using the right side of their brain for creativity. You know, lawyers are very analytical. We use the uh, left side of our brain more. But we need to be using more right side. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 you want your organization or your business to sustain past you, be it your departure, your retirement, your death, whatever it may be. And with respect to my family, you know, my legacy is, is what I'm going to leave to my son, making sure I spend time with him being Present and and COVID has helped me to do that and Mm -hmm. making sure that, you know, we're functioning in, you know, savings versus debt and making sure we have property that I can leave to my son and my son can leave to his children. Um, Getting involved in the community, getting involved with the PTA. These are long lasting effects that not only impact my immediate family, but will hopefully strengthen the community and those who live around us.
0: Maybe a shameless plug for your organization and your business. Tell listeners, uh, again, what that is. You've made reference to it a number of times, but give folks a a sense. Because again, hospitality people might be the primary listeners here, but give them a sense of what you've created here and, and where you're going with your business.
1: Thank you. Uh, In 2004, I created an organization called Corporate Counsel Women of Color to meet the the unmet needs of women of color attorneys in the law Um, with career advice and career strategy and support network. Many of you may be familiar with Corporate Counsel Women of Color because we have an annual conference and we've used many of the hotel properties for this. But we are focused on, you know, making sure that our members have an opportunity to know how to negotiate their salaries so that they're getting their worth and making sure that they have a seat at the table and a voice at the table. We're now um, working to help with the new initiatives and pushes for board diversity. So we're developing board Uh, ready candidates, working with KPMG on that. And, you know, my hope is also that we will be able to one day help help to get our members ready to be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And we have many members who are in the hospitality industry. And, you know, a lot of the things that we do, they're connected to hospitality. So I appreciate what you all do. And, um, you know, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you on these important topics.
0: Yeah. And again, please let us know if we can participate in some way uh, with your events. Uh, If it's, you know, education topics, you know, as a search practitioner, maybe there's an opportunity for us to lend our expertise in some of these areas of career progression, career advancement. Uh, compensation, organizational development. So please feel free to think of us or use us as a resource um, as you look. continue to promote uh, what you're doing. And again, Laurie, thank you so much for your time. And
1: thank look, you. Look
0: forward to uh, hopefully seeing you in person next time rather than on a Zoom call. Well,
1: thank, right. again, thank goodness somebody was adapting and and was ready for this crisis. Yeah. And uh, Zoom has helped to keep all of us connected. And uh, I'm glad
0: to see you. All right. All the best to you and your family.
1: OK, thank you so much. All right.
0: okay, OK, take care.
1: OK, bye bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefchitz on here.